see if my voice lasts for the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, if the service ends abruptly, we'll know why. But uh, <clears throat> so I don't think I'll make it out to a Shakespeare in the Park event anytime soon, but uh, always wanted to watch a live play. And here's a line from one of my favorites. I need a skull or something, but is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? This is Macbeth contemplating killing the good King Duncan in his own bed, committing treason to rise to the top. It's the ultimate example of thoughts producing actions. The dagger he sees in his mind will soon be the dagger in his hand. Now we look at this fictitious character and we're given a glimpse of the reality of evil that's in all of us, and there's nothing false or fictitious about sin in us. <clears throat> but as impactful as Shakespeare may be in English literature, there's a better source of truth about our fallen condition. And we'll see that in today's passage in 2 Samuel 4, and we'll get a glimpse into our dark sin nature. So, 2 Samuel 4. It's in page 214 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a, like a Bible at home or if you want a new King James Version of the Bible, please take one home as a gift from us to you. Take the Pew Bible. And that's in page 214 as you follow along today. 2 Samuel 4. <clears throat> when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other Rakav, the sons of Rimon the Birotite, of the children of Benjamin. For Birot also was part of Benjamin because the Beorothites fled to get time and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. And the sons of Rimon, the Beorothite, Rechab and Baana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. But when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. And they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head. And were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. Who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged 
my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants? But David answered Rechab and Baana his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So it's easy to see this chapter as a unit. Both the first and last verse mention Abner in Hebron. We saw in the previous chapter how David initially welcomed Abner and his men in that city. The nation was on the eve of a peaceful transfer of power, on the brink of harmony and unity. But then the brothers Joab and Abishai messed it all up. They played a part of Leroy Jenkins, and they killed Abner, who practically made all the moves to establish David as king. Now he's a lifeless corpse, lamented and buried in heaven. Now Abner was the real power, real source of power behind the resistance to David's house. So his death leads to a power vacuum. Opportunists rise to fill that void. The narrator clearly identifies them. Take note of that phrase, the sons of Ramon the Berothite. It's in verses 2, 5, and 9. Okay, so 2, 5, and 9. These two drive the story. It's their background, their wickedness, and their condemnation that are central, most important to the story. Also important are the words of the inspired narrator in verse 1, the misguided villains in verse 8, and the wise king in verses 9 to 11. Now, based on these literary features, I think of three major roadblocks that hinder the path to God's kingdom. I call them stumbling blocks, but roadblocks. First, faith in man leaves us vulnerable to disaster. Faith in man leaves us vulnerable to disaster. That's verses 1 to 4. Secondly, lust for power hastens us for judgment. Lust for power hastens us for judgment. That's verses 5 to 8. Thirdly, disregard for life condemns us as guilty. This regard for life condemns us as guilty. That's verses 9 to 12. First, faith in man leaves us vulnerable to disaster. So we're going to focus on verse 1 here, and I'll read it again. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. When it says Ishbosheth lost heart, 
it literally says his hands fell limp, hanging droopy, relaxed, slackened. Not surprising. What happens to a marionette when the puppeteer is gone? What happens when the limbs are disconnected from the head? It also says that all Israel was troubled. We last saw that word troubled back in 1 Samuel 28, 21. Saul was severely troubled because just moments ago, the spirit of the deceased prophet Samuel had announced that his reign is about to end. The army of Israel will lose to the Philistines. He and his sons will die. It says in verse 20 in that chapter, just before that, immediately Saul fell full into the ground, on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. Like Saul then, my guess is that Saul's son and his followers reacted similarly at the news of Abner's death. That's what they get for trusting in man, but that's what we get for trusting in man too. We also make the same mistake. If our hope is in leaders, politicians, even our spouses or other people that are close in our lives, disappointment's inevitable. Like Ishbosheth and all Israel, you too will lose heart and be troubled. The only solution is to place our faith fully in the Lord, submit to Him. Now, it's true that even seasoned believers face this roadblock at times. We're tempted to rely on people on earth more than our God in heaven. I mentioned a book by Ed Welch that I read this year, When People Are Big and God is Small. And here's the main idea. What do we, who do we fear more, God or man? The solution to fearing man is not just ignoring it, right, but fearing God more. And when we fear God more than people, we're freed, liberated. We need, we'll need people less and we'll be able to love them more. Now, don't take Ed Welch's word or my word for it. Let me read you a few Bible verses for meditation. Maybe you can write the references down, meditate on them today and the rest of the week. Psalm 118, 8-9, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Again, that's Psalm 118, 8-9. Psalm 146, 3 to 7. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Faith in man leaves us vulnerable to disaster. We'll see in a few verses how that disaster turns quickly from possibility to reality 
But first, the narrator sets up the scene. In verses 2 to 4, the readers are introduced to Ba'ana and Rechab, the sons of Rimen. Rimen was a man from Burot, a city that once belonged to the Gibeonites. After the treaty of Israel, with Israel, the city was incorporated into the Benjaminite territory. Closer to the time of 2 Samuel 4, as the Philistines advanced, the inhabitants of Burot deserted their city and fled to another city in Gittim. But the Burotites were not the only ones fleeing. We're told in verse 4 about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Now, we're going to get to know Mephibosheth a little bit later in this book. But, and so some ask why verse 4 is included here. I believe the narrator introduces him here to indicate how weak Saul's house has become. Ishbosheth's nothing without Abner. And meanwhile, Mephibosheth's too young and he can't even walk. So all those on the side of Saul must realize this faith in man leaves them vulnerable to disaster. Now, Ishbosheth still has time for action. The best option for him is to humble himself, run for his life to Hebron, and beg the Lord's anointed for mercy and protection. Remember, David made a promise with Jonathan to show kindness to Saul's house. Hebron can truly be Ishbosheth's city of refuge. Staying where he was would be unsafe. Now, perhaps pride and despair blinded Ishbosheth because we don't see him do anything. That's why the story moves forward and he comes to an ignoble end. In the next four verses, we see another roadblock on the path to God's kingdom. Lust for power hastens us toward judgment. I suppose the only thing worse than just sitting there on the couch is just lying there on the bed. That's how we find Ishbosheth in verse 5, the son of Saul's either having a siesta, being lazy, practically dead already because of Abner's demise, any combination of these things or something else. The sons of Rimen, meanwhile, are busy at work. They know that Saul's house is about to collapse, they want to position themselves to rise to the top of David's ranks. Money, prestige, fame, all could have served as motivations, but simply put, wickedness. Verses 6 and 7 appear to be repetitive at first, but it's not uncommon for Bible writers, authors, to give a general overview of an event before furnishing it with specific. Uh, specific details. The verse 6 reveals the devious plot of Rechab and Ba'ana. Those soldiers, they acted like delivery men. They gained access into Ishbosheth's home, disguising themselves or blending in with those who bring weed into the house. They also snuck in some blade to stab him in the stomach. That's now three chapters in a row. In the early part of 2 Samuel 2, 3, and 4, where someone died with an abdomen wound. 
Again, verse 7 adds details to verse 6. It exposes how cruel and wicked men can be when they're driven by lust for power. Captains of troops who kill warriors in battle would stoop so low to kill a man in his own bed. The narrator wants us to know clearly that Ishbosheth was lying on his bed in his bedroom, unsuspecting. Perhaps he never saw those who killed him. And then you see the three consecutive verbs in the middle of the verse struck, killed, beheaded. And then you see how that lust for power gives them that extra motivation to travel all night to reach Hebron. As Proverbs 6, 17, 18 says, they have hands that shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil. They were the opposite of the valiant men of Javesh Gilead. Remember, they were eager to pay their respects to the king. But these wicked sons of Rimmon were eager to be paid by the king. Well, they're going to get paid, all right. Just not what they expected. When they arrived at the head of Ishbosheth and opened their mouths in verse 8, they uttered their last words. The words of Rechab and Baana reveal that they do not know the way of peace or the Lord of peace. They do not understand that David passed up opportunities to get rid of Saul, who was hunting him. Back in 1 Samuel 24, two providentially ended up in the same cave while his men urged David to kill Saul and be done with this life as a fugitive. David refused. He refused to cut corners except for the corner of Saul's robe. Here is words to Saul moments later in verse 12. Let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Later in chapter 26, David passed up another opportunity to kill Saul. Like Ishbosheth, Saul was lying defenseless, unsuspecting, and resting. Like Rechab and Baana, David and Abishai drew near and stood over the king. But the comparison ends there. The son of Jesse was different from the sons of Zeruiah and the sons of Rimmon. Abishai, Rechab, and Baana all wanted to kill David's rival. David either prevents that sin or he punishes it. David saw these encounters as opportunities not for vengeance or revenge, but to give place for God's wrath and overcome evil with good. You can't heap coals of fire on the enemy's head if you cut off his head. How can David be so noble? We see what motivated him back in 1 Samuel 20. He made a promise with another one of Saul's sons, Jonathan, who asked him in verse 14 to 15, you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. Know not when, the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. The covenant of faithfulness. For Rechab and Ba'ana know nothing 
of the good kindness of the Lord for the fidelity to the covenant. They stand, they dare stand before the Lord's anointed, thinking they're the Lord's agents. Consider what David must do now as king. Proverbs tells us in chapter 20, verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. Same chapter, verse 26, Proverbs of chapter 20. A wise king sips out the wicked and brings a threshing wheel over them. Chapter 25, verse 5 of Proverbs. Take away the wicked from before the king and his throne will be established in righteousness. And that gets us thinking about the third roadblock to God's kingdom. Disregard for life condemns us as guilty. We move on to the last four verses of 2 Samuel 4. Let's stay on verse 8 for a moment and consider verses 8 and 9 as a hinge. It's a turning point. The wicked men arrive expecting the light of the king's face and favor. Instead, they face his wrath. Also compare the words spoken by Rechab and Ba'ana and the words spoken by David. There's a world of difference between them. The captains present themselves and the evil works of their hands before talking about God. The wise king speaks of God and his protective sovereign hand before talking about himself. The order is different there. The sons of Raymond emphasize how Saul the enemy sought David's life. The son of Jesse emphasizes and exalts the one who has redeemed his life from all adversity. In fact, these wicked men know nothing about life. David's about to tell them how their disregard for it condemns them as guilty. He finds precedence in the events of 2 Samuel 1. Recall that an Amalekite arrived in the Ziklag where David was, claiming that he delivered a killing blow to finish off the fatally wounded King Saul. It doesn't look like David bought that argument, but he did judge that ghoulish opportunist based on his own words, what he believed to be good news for David and his friends. The final word over his dead body was, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. It was the words out of his mouth that condemned the Amalekite. As for Rechab and Ba'ana, it was not only the words out of their mouths, it was also the head of Ishbosheth in their hands. The violence of the wicked will destroy them, Proverbs 21.7 says. If justice demanded retribution in chapter 1, it certainly demands it now in chapter 4. This is if then how much more argument called light and heavy in Hebrew, argument from the stronger in Latin. Easy to understand. He must be punished. A quick two comments on verse 11. First, somehow David figures out that these captains killed Saul's son in his own house, 
in his own bed. It could be that Rechab and Baana let slip that detail. Or they used the bedroom sheets or the victim's clothing to hide and carry the decapitated head to Hebron. Well, you might say, well, treason is treason. But it's that much more wicked and cruel to betray your superior in this way. In this chapter, 2 Samuel 4, four times Ishbosheth's house is mentioned, three times his bed, twice that he's lying on it. There's only one conclusion. This regard for life condemns them as guilty. It's one thing for this kind of treachery to take place in Syria, as Hazael would do this in Ben-Hadad, and later in 2 Kings 8. God's people must not tolerate this among them. The Lord warns us in the prophets later in Zephaniah 1.9 that someday he'll punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. 2 comment on verse 11. David does not verbally recognize Ishbosheth as king, even if his actions indicate he recognizes him as Saul's descendant. But even that's not at the forefront here. In the middle of verse 11, he's more general. At the most basic level, these wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house, on his own bed. It's clear as day to David as judge, who is innocent, are guilty. This is murder of innocent life. There's no hope of acquittal in the city of refuge. Not when Rechab and Ba'ana are literally red-handed. Though David, the Lord's anointed, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The punishment fits the crime as the sons of Ramon are killed and their hands and feet hung by the pool in Hebron. All the citizens are warned. This is what happens to hands defiled with blood and feet swift to shed blood. This regard for life condemns us as guilty. As for what remains of Ishbosheth, he's given a proper burial alongside Abner's body. While David isn't as demonstrative at the news of Ishbosheth's passing, his resting place given there certainly affords him great honor. Now, this is a story of justice. It's about wicked choices and consequences that follow. We're reminded how, by no means, does the Lord clear the guilty. We need dramatic reminders. Of God's righteousness, especially when life seems unfair, the world seems unjust. We must be told over and over again that faith in man, lust for power, disregard for life are costly sins. But now we ask, what does this chapter have to do with the greater story of redemption and the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, we need to consider first our connections to the 
treacherous captains and the false king here. It's easy to distance ourselves from Rechab and Ba'ana and really all the villains of the Bible. I would never do what they did, we claim. I don't have ambitions for power like they do. But consider how the scriptures address normal churchgoers, law-abiding citizens. James 4, 1-2 asks, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. And what Brother Noah read earlier from Galatians, that also shows us where the source of these battles and wars and rebellion come from, from our flesh. Now, it's shocking that the Bible will speak to everyday people like this. He's not talking to criminals in the streets or prison. In all of us, there are desires for pleasure, lust, coveting. It's Jesus himself who said in Matthew 15, 19, that out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders. Because of our sin nature, we have all that we need to be like the sons of women. That's why Paul can say confidently in Romans 3, 10 to 18, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. Poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. <clears throat> this isn't pessimism. This isn't being a hater. It's reality. That's why... What we can't, that's why uh, we can't put our faith in man. Whether that's faith in ourselves or in others. You look at the most handsome people on TV, the most influential figures on social media, and think they have it all. Look inside their hearts and we see the same depravity and corruption that we find in all humanity. That's not stories end there. It's worth repeating. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Trust in the living God, the Savior of all men. Do not put your faith in names like Abner. Certainly do not bet on yourself. Rest your hopes of heaven in the name of Jesus. There's no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. This is the good news. Though we're guilty of sin in God's eyes, we can be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's because only Jesus is both man and God at the same time, lived a perfect life among us, and though he did nothing wrong, he went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin that 
we should pay in hell. He suffered separation from God when he was crucified. His hands and feet were pierced, even though it's our hands and feet that should hang in shame. He died and he was buried. He rose again from the dead on the third day, proving that he's alive. He has accomplished the work of salvation. He'll return someday to judge all mankind. So what do we do now? You know, today's uh, passage, uh, David ruling and judging as king, kind of like a preview of the kingdom that's coming. Christ will establish his throne with judgment and justice. Are we ready for his reign? Please be sure that you are. Scary to think that Jesus will turn away those who prophesied, cast out demons, and performed miracles in his name. He'll tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Our Lord knows who really, who truly revere and honor his name and those who are counterfeits. How will we stand before him? What will we be like Anna and Rechab? What are we going to bring in our hands? Are we going to bring good works, money, blood of our enemies? Leave behind all efforts to please God from your own strength. Repent of your evil ways. Bring a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Be saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. that the last song can be a reminder. When I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, clap for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for justice, that you are a righteous God, and that you will set all wrong, punish all wrong, even though there's a persistent problem of evil in this universe, in this fallen creation. But you will set all things right in the future. This is still the Father's will. It will still be forever. And we're thankful for mercy that we can find in the covenant that we have to someone greater than David, David's Lord, your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, instead of pursuing our own ends or living in despair or following our ambitions, may we rest in you. May we rest in your son, Jesus Christ. Cling to him. Hide in him as the only source. It's better to trust uh, in you than in princes and put confidence in man. We thank you for the truth. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.